This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Commitment. And joining me from Florida is author Joanna Andrews. Welcome, Joanna, to the program. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. This book is, uh, how would you describe it? Would you call it a self-help book, a motivational book, uh, a devotional book? It does have those elements. What would you call it? It sure does. I would say it's a little bit of self-help. I'd say it's a little bit of motivation, um, spiritual inspiration, and almost like a how to discover God a little bit. Beautiful. You you are not a person that's about to teeter off the edge of the earth either. Uh, you are still active in education and um, have a background there in teaching and instructing others. You started out probably, I guess, not that long ago with a chapter that talks about the dream. What was the dream and how did that come about? Yes, yes, the dream. Well, I was probably about 20 years old, as a matter of fact, and I was a student at Florida State University and kind of struggling with where I was at in my life. Um, The struggle wasn't new, but I had hit this pivotal moment where I just felt like I could not really discover uh, who I was and what love was all about. And I think that's a concept and an emotion that we all really long for. So as I was mulling this over, I ended up having this dream. I fell asleep, and it was just really great. It was a very eye-opening. And basically what happened in the dream was I had what I would call a visit. And that visit was from, from God and the Holy Spirit all in one. And basically, I in that dream, I look around, and I'm standing in water, which I thought was really interesting. And in front of me was was God, and he and I kind of had a conversation like you and I are having. And basically, I questioned him and said in that moment, oh, okay, as I'm searching for love in my life, the question was to him, I have to get through all of these people to find it, to find what I'm looking for, which I didn't realize at that moment was actually the full commitment. But that was what I, what I you know, posed to him, and he really spoke to me in that dream and said, no you don't need to go through hundreds and hundreds of people to find the love that I have. You need to come to me. And it was so emotional. I remember waking up and almost in kind of like a panic mode, like, oh, my goodness, what has just happened? And I knew in that moment that that was a real, real encounter that I had had. And I sought out a friend of mine and said, I need your help. And I knew that she was a Christian at that time, and I just, I told her what happened, and she looked at me and said, oh boy, and I was like, well, do you know, do you know what that means? And basically, we had, you know, a 10-minute conversation, and she explained to me, yeah, I mean, I think what it means is you need to stop searching around the world and searching through other people. The love and security that you're looking for, ultimately, you got to go to him first, and I really appreciated her sharing that with me and kind of educating me, because at that time I I needed that education, educating me on what that meant. 
And the funny part about it is I still, after that dream, you know, I still, there was probably a six-year time period, and it discusses this in the book, that I still kind of went back to my own ways and working through the flesh and, and trying to locate what I didn't know was that full commitment. That was the whole. That was the valid void that I felt. I still kind of went through the same process. And then, as it does talk about in the book, that sort of leads up to the surrender. But I'd say that that dream was a very pivotal awakening for me that this is real. Uh, did you grow up in a religious environment that uh, kind of uh, nudged you towards this decision or this dream? Sure. Yeah, I would say so. I A little bit. Yes and no. I'm going to say yes and no to that. Um, I think that the seeds were planted. I grew up in a, a specific religion. Um, which, you know, is is very appropriate if that is what some people, you know, choose to do. Um, and so I just accepted it because that's just the way that it was. I think that the seeds were planted. I think that my struggle was I didn't really uh, understand it, you know, and that's not a fault of the religion. It's just, you know, you're young and you're exposed in a certain way and it is what it is. And so I, I had some seeds, I believe, but I felt like why am I not really – at my best like what am I missing and so just being exposed to it definitely it helped and then again you know it talks about more in the book that um, I continued to practice that religion in my early 20s after the dream thinking well let me go back to what I know right because that's typically what we do let me go back to what I know and I did and and that really helped it it pushed me even to another step I think and then um I think I made the transition from practicing what I would consider a religion to more of practicing God and that commitment. And that just kind of led me to other um, other outlets. Uh, you know, we belong to a, what we would consider an interdenominational or a non-denominational Christian church now. So, again, nothing against that religion. But, um, you know, in fairness, I think that the seeds were there, it was planted, and I think that ultimately, through the commitment, you know, God really leads you where you need to be to worship. And for some people, that is a, a religious church. There is nothing wrong with that. For me, that was not the case. And for me to move to the next step, you know, I had to go the way that he directed me. And that just meant more of a Christian-based influence for me. And that really helped me to understand the commitment and that one-on-one connection that maybe I didn't get as a young girl. As a uh, as an attender of a secular university, was there anything that maybe changed once you had this dream, or was life pretty much the same as it had been, other than the fact that maybe a few of your questions were answered? Sure. Yeah, I, I think that was a big change. I think I still had the battle. I had the flesh versus the faith battle. And once that dream hit, I knew. I knew that God loved me. And I knew that he was ready for me. What I didn't know was that I had to follow. I had to pursue. He came to me. He made it clear, as I think that he does for all of us, hopefully at some point in our life, he makes it clear, I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. But there is that aspect of free will. And I think that, you know, the free will continued quite a bit at the university and just, you know, just being young and having a good time and and that. That happens. That does occur uh, for some of us. And 
But I, but what I really think happened was that dream, I, that never left me. Once I had it, I knew, okay, it's up to me. And I think maybe, I, you know, as a young person and really needing a lot of help and guidance spiritually, I was scared and I was afraid. And ultimately, I had to get over that and realize that fear is definitely not worth the commitment that I can have because fear is really just the enemy trying to keep you away from your commitment or so that's what I learned. You know, that fear is really just the enemy pulling at you and trying to continue to get you to do works of the flesh. So the dream was pivotal. It set, it set that foundation. It let me know that God is there for me and now I need to take the step. And that's really, really important in the commitment. We do have to take those steps. God directs the path. Your motivation in uh, penning the commitment, was it because you have always had a desire to be an author? Or was it maybe something related to your spiritual journey? That is such a great question because it's definitely the latter. The funny thing is I never thought about really being an author or writing a book. In school, I wasn't really the mathematic type. So I was definitely more of an English. I liked writing. That was my strength. Um, but I never really, I never knew. I never thought about that. And that's the beautiful thing about the commitment is you have no idea what direction God is going to take you. But you will be happy because he already knows. He knows that plan. So I think really when I, you know, really kind of discovered the commitment, um, one a couple of things came to my mind. And one of them was, Wow why did nobody tell me this? And again, it's no fault of the church I was going to. It's no fault of my upbringing. It's not that at all. Um, the timing was perfect, but that was not a, a feeling of anger. That was more a feeling of motivation, meaning now that I know about the commitment and God came to me directly, I need to share it because there certainly is at least one person or if not many more out there that are in my position. You don't know what you don't know. If you're not exposed to it, you don't know. And so I think that, um, you know, God really made it very clear to me. And as I was pondering this and as I realized, wow, God, you know, I need to share this too, because there's people out there that didn't, didn't get that connection the way that, that I didn't get it as well. And he kind of spoke to me and said, well, you know what, you're going to, you're going to write this book. And I remember thinking, well, that's, that's crazy. I don't know how to do that. And you know what? I didn't need to know. It, it doesn't matter because you can do all things through God who strengthens you, and you can do all things through the plan that he has for you. And that's what's so exciting about the commitment is you just never know what what direction you're going to go. Much like working in the school and, and my job currently, I never really thought about that. And I didn't need to because it was just part of the plan. And as he orchestrates his commitment and as he orchestrates that one-on-one -on -one plan for each person, things change, you know, and things continue, you continue to progress, you continue to grow. And there's a really good chance that you might be doing something that you never thought. But ultimately, it's, it's those passions and those desires that give birth once you have that commitment. You have 122 pages. Describe for me the ideal reader who is going to feel... Uh, uh, connected to you uh, in the story and in, in your journey? I have thought so hard about that question because I've really tried to develop who I think the ideal reader is, and I can't quite put it into a box uh, because really I think it's for anybody. But I'll tell you this. I think that what's most important is I think that it, it probably will be 
super powerful for someone who's sort of at the end of their rope, if you will. Like, in other words, if you're a person out there and you feel at whatever stage you're at, whether you're 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, etc., if you feel whatever stage you're at, you've done everything you can and something is just not happening in your life, you're not going where you need to go, you're not feeling what you need to feel, I think that's a good platform to be at when you pick up the commitment and you read it because you're going to be more open. So sometimes desperation is the best thing that can ever happen to us because desperation means you're in need. And it's not that God wants us to continue to feel desperate, but he loves the weak because that's his whole purpose is you don't have to be strong. You don't have to figure it all out. You just need to decide if you're going to enter in your own personal commitment and God will guide you. So, you know, I think it's really for anybody that's seeking that spiritual connection, that one-on-one connection. But as far as like age or demographics or marital status, I really believe it's for anybody. I still read it. I've read it many, many, many times. I have friends who, you know, are married, single, and they've read it many times. I will tell you this. Probably the most powerful feedback I've gotten has, in fact, been from singles. And I don't know if that's because sometimes when you're you're single, you have, a, as I did, you have a lot of time to process the whys and the hows and the what ifs and where am I going from here in all aspects, career, love, you know, finances, family. So you just have more time to process. So I will say that the most passionate feedback that I have gotten has really been from singles. And maybe that's because the origin of the the commitment gave birth when I was in fact single. Maybe that has something to do with it. But Mm. I would encourage anybody to be open, be open to it. Um, It's not going to put you in a box. It's your commitment. It's your one-on-one relationship with God. But it certainly will be a guide for you to get there. A motivational book. The uh, chapter titles, chapter one, the surrender, chapter two, the decision maker, chapter three, prayer, Four, obedience, five, doubt, six, believe, and then chapter seven, which wraps it all up, is the results. So it's well thought out. Is this a book that is going to be the end of your writing career, or is there something else motivating you for the future? Sure, yeah. You know what? I I think it's probably just the beginning. I am still in my own commitment, and I am still growing, and I'm still learning. And although I'm at a much different stage in my life and have hundreds of blessings that I uh, hadn't yet reached at the beginning of the commitment. I'm making notes, as a matter of fact. I mean, I pray all the time, and I make notes all the time. So I'd say that I'm working on the birth of the next book, really. I'm not sure if that'll be uh, a specific sequel to the commitment, or rather just the second phase, Uh, but I am working on it. So I am definitely going to say it is not over. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining me today. The title of the book, again, is The Commitment, Joanna Andrews. Joanna is spelled with an H, J-O-H-A-N-N-A, if you're doing a search online. And uh, this book is about 112, 14 pages, not a long read, but has some wonderful insight into into her personal journey and inspiration and motivation for those who read it. Where can they get a copy of this, Joanna? Sure. They can, uh, I would encourage you to go to my website. It is available there. The website is Joanna Andrews, the number four, PC for the commitment.com. 
there'll also be a blog that'll be coming soon. You can also get the book on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Fabulous. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. This is a, a very fine book for anyone that is on a spiritual journey or needs to start one, and uh, one that will motivate them in their, uh, in their search. Thank you again for being a part of today's program. Thank you so much. My pleasure for author, for author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book, The Future of Clean Energy, Who Wins and Who Loses as the World Goes Green. And joining me is author Gary Schwindeman, who joins me from near Phoenix, Arizona, in the United States of America. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to visit with you. Your book is uh, extensive, but before I get into the book itself, let me give a little more of your, your personal background. You have uh, a doctorate degree and uh, been involved in education for a number of years, including 17 years as the Dean of College and Business Administration at the University of Nebraska. Uh, you worked at the General Motors Institute and several other institutes of higher learning. Why did you become interested or focus on energy as uh, a topic? I know that you also are involved in a, a an investment uh, firm that focuses on this this area. Well, uh, I was dean of the College of Business at the University of Nebraska, and they were one of the leaders in producing the alternate fuel ethanol because in the United States it's made out of corn. So I knew a lot about uh, the making of ethanol, and uh, I was interested in whether a person could make money on it. And the answer was no, because it needed government subsidies to uh, to be um, uh, useful. But what happened is that they computerized the ethanol plants, and I was visiting one on day, a new one. And uh, it used to cost about $3 a gallon to make ethanol, and I asked them, how much does it cost to make a gallon of ethanol? They said $1. Wow. And gas was at the time one dollar and twenty five cents, you mm-hmm. know. And if you can make twenty five cents on a gallon and sell a few gallons, there's real money in it. So we raised money from farmers and started a uh, investment fund, which did very well because the worth of ethanol is competitive with uh, gasoline. Gasoline prices went up, and uh, we did very well, and the farmers did very well, and uh, we learned a lot about it. 
Now, and then uh, we got into wind and solar and so forth, and I decided to write a book on it because energy is so important. Uh, you've mentioned in your book that ethanol is not gasoline as such. Can ethanol be used 100% in place as a replacement for gasoline, or is it always blended? It's always blended uh, in the United States. It can be blended either as 15% ethanol and 85% gasoline or 85% uh, ethanol and 15% gasoline. Another large producer is Brazil, and they produce so much that one time they uh, did have 100% ethanol cars, and you can use 100% ethanol, but it's made out of sugar there, and the sugar price went so high that they didn't have any ethanol. Mm. So they couldn't run the car, so they learned their lesson there. And now it always has to be blended. So you can use full gasoline, you can use 15% ethanol, or you can use 85% ethanol. And ethanol itself, is is that also, is it uh, accurate to say that that is an alcohol-based product, or is it just the, uh, the, the corn leftover that is uh, an alcohol-based product? It is pure alcohol. Absolutely pure alcohol. And uh, there's a law that they have to put gasoline in it within 24 hours so that the fraternity boys don't learn where it is <laughs> and uh, steal one of the train cars. <laughs> wow. You you also mentioned your, your book is quite extensive. Uh, it has 216 pages, and uh, you've gone into great depth. And from my understanding, you've tried to simplify this so that plain people like me can actually understand the complexity of the energy crisis that has uh, plagued the the world over the years. You uh, mention also in your book that hybrids and electric cars may not be the car of the future. Is that also correct? Well, I think, yes, it is, it is correct. And all one has to do to figure out what's going on there is to look at when gas prices get high, what happens. Mm. All you have to do is look at Europe, where the gas prices are 7 and $8 a gallon, and what they're driving there are small internal combustion engine cars. And you see more and more of those in the United States, and uh, we'll continue to see those. One of the things people forget, and I was at the General Motors Research Institute, is that the internal combustion engine, which started with Henry Ford, is now still improving in terms of miles. There are small cars that now get 60 miles a gallon, which is more than you get in a hybrid. Uh, The other thing is that there's a high cost in batteries, but if you want real evidence about the uh, electrics and the hybrids being used, there is a, a... a trade-in. If people quit using these alternative cars, hybrids, plug-in hybrids, and electrics, when they trade them in, only 50% of the people buy another alternative car. Interesting. And and, and, and so what that tells you is that 50% of the people who are driving the alternative cars are not satisfied with them, and they're not going to buy another one. Well, that tells you something about not just the technical part of the car, but the experience of driving it. Hmm. And the other thing that's happening with with these alternative cars is that they are heavily subsidized by the government. Uh, In the United States, uh, they're subsidized up to $7,500, 
And uh, that runs out when uh, a dealer has sold 200,000 or a company sold 200,000. So that's eventually going to run out. Mm. That happened in Japan. Hybrids were selling big. And when the government took off the subsidy, the sales went to about 5% of what they used to be. And the same thing's going to happen in the United States. And the cost of batteries, uh, replacement replacement batteries, is really, really high uh, over the cost of replacing an engine, is it not? It's uh, it's extremely high. In fact, if you say, what's the problem with the hybrids, the plug-in hybrids, and the electrics, in one word, it's batteries. Mm. Well, it's and the second one is the pleasure of driving. And that's why only 50% of the people who turn in an alternative car buy a new one. So if you want to buy an alternative car, what you do is go to somebody who's driven one for two years and they trade it on, and you get it for 50% of the new price. Wow. Nuclear energy. That's the big message. What what did what what have you uh, d- displayed or or talked about uh, uh, relating to nuclear? There's a lot of uh, uh, concern about that type of energy and its uh, effect on the environment. How do you view it? Well, if you look at nuclear power as opposed to all the other ways of electricity, the first point is that nuclear power is just at the beginning of its development. Hmm. If you look at all other ways of electricity. There, uh, with exception of solar, they're about a hundred percent as efficient as they're going to be. With nuclear power, uh, they're only about twenty percent as efficient as they're going to be. And let me just tell you about a few developments in nuclear power. There is a nuclear power reactor as big as a hot tub. Wow! That can produce electricity for twenty thousand people. It's buried underground. It doesn't have to be refueled for 10 years. It's completely safe, and it produces electricity for 20,000 people. Now, let's say you have a town of 20,000 people somewhere in Africa. All you do is go in. You put one of these hot hot tubs in the ground. Now, everybody has electricity. There are 3 billion people in the world who do not have either electricity or adequate electricity, three billion. What's going to happen as soon as these uh, hot tub size reactors are on an assembly line is they're going to be made and shipped all over the world and put in place. They don't have to be refueled for 10 years. Now, here's another new development, and this one is backed by Bill Gates. He is developing with his team a reactor that uses as fuel nuclear waste. Hmm. Wow. That ends the nuclear waste problem when this particular reactor gets underway. And I think it will be successful because it it depends on how much capital you can put in it. And unless I miss my guess, Gates has a little bit of capital. A possibility. Boy, that's amazing. Those are a couple of the things. Uh, a third thing is, a third thing is that all of the, all of the uh, nuclear power plants now, the big ones, have a containment facility that contains any radiation from escaping, fourteen feet thick with 
steel. Right. Now, one of the crises was Three Mile Islands, right? Right. How many people died in the Three Mile Island crisis? Zero. How many died from uh, nuclear exposure in Fukushima? Zero. Zero. Died. How many people have ever died from nuclear power uh, exposure in the United States since the beginning? Zero. Zero. How many people have died in the United States from dams breaking? 7,000. Mm. That's an amazing statistic. You uh, you have also touched on wind, on wind power and Europe. Uh, I've traveled to Europe uh, several times and just got back from Italy a while back, and the wind turbines are everywhere. What is your perspective on their energy usage and their energy uh, bend towards wind power and ours? Well, wind power is never going to be used produced baseload power. Hmm. And here's why. If you uh, take a large nuclear power plant, the, the kind that you say, which are, which are now safe, uh, 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 the, the uh, problem of Three Mile Island wasn't a crisis or a disaster. It was a demonstration of how safe nuclear power plants are because the average radiation that a person got is the same as a dense x-ray. Now, when you look at wind, for small communities or small production of electricity, it works. But to equal a nuclear power plant, you have to have 270 square miles of windmills. Wow. 270 square miles. The reason you have to have them is wind is only 33% effective. Coal is 100% effective in the terms that it always turns out electricity. Natural gas always turns out electricity. Nuclear energy always turns out electricity. Water turns out electricity. But a windmill turns out electricity 33% of the time. Now, solar will also be used on houses and small applications. But it can't equal the amount put out by one nuclear power plant unless you have 70 square miles of solar panels. So both wind and solar will be used for small applications, but they will never replace a nuclear power plant. And the nuclear power plants are going to get more and more Efficient. One of the problems with nuclear power is if you look it up, go Google, Google, you see a picture of a nuclear power plant, and then you see a picture of an atomic explosion. Well, people don't understand it. It's explained in the book. A nuclear power plant cannot explode because the uranium in the nuclear power plant is only enriched 5%. To make an atomic weapon, it has to be at range 90%. So it is physically impossible for a nuclear power plant to, to blow up. This is fascinating information. Uh-huh. There, there's a great emotional, uh, I, I think, uh, I, don't, I don't know if the word attachment is correct, but a, a great emotional response, I guess it would be, to nuclear power and also to the wind turbines. And wind turbines themselves are not necessarily environmentally friendly, from what I have read. 
Yeah, that's correct. And uh, they are anything that covers 270 square miles is not going to be environmentally sound. And anything that covers 70 square miles is not going to be environmentally sound. The major problem with nuclear power is solved by reading my book. Because the major problem with nuclear power is that people have not been educated on it. And the difference between my book and a lot of other books you read is that I was a professor, and what a good professor does is to take very complicated issues and put them in words that the average reader, the common reader, the person with a high school education can read it. And what I've done is taken all of the 50-cent words out of the book. I've also taken out all of the formulas. So the important thing is they understand it conceptually, they understand some facts about it, and the people I've talked to who have read the book's just been published say the thing that I like the best about the book is that I could read it, I could understand it, and I could keep the important parts in my head because uh, you read an uh, some book on nuclear energy, and you get about three pages, and there are formulas. So this book was designed for the common person, and it looks like from the reviews that that's exactly what we're doing because there is such great misperception. But one time through the book, and you'll see why nuclear power is the electricity producer of the future. There's no doubt about it. You've included a lot of graphs and uh, uh, sketches, those types of things that are uh, an ad- addendum to your your text. How long did it take you, Gary, to complete the book? Well, it took about two and a half years. Uh, and one of the reasons is that I had all the information, but just information, we have an overload of information, and what's critical is that you formulate it and communicate it in a way that people can understand. And so we went through a great deal of editing and had a lot of people read it and ask them, is there something in here you don't understand? And if they said, yes, we rewrite it. And so that's why it took uh, uh, two and a half years to write. Phenomenal. We think the finished product is probably the best book on clean energy, not because it has the best information in it, but because people can understand it. Well, thank you for sharing this story. And the title, again, is The Future of Clean Energy. My guest, author, Gary Schwindeman. Let me spell that name for you in case you're doing a search online. It's S-C-H-W-E-N-D-I-M-A-N. Dr. Schwindeman, where can they get copies of your book? They can order it on Amazon, either by uh, looking at my name or the name of the book, The Future of Clean Energy. Phenomenal task completing this, and uh, certainly an important read for anybody that has some concerns about the environment and uh, perhaps the future of of energy. I love the title, The Future of Clean Energy, not just a, a paper with opinions in it, but wonderfully researched. Thank you again, Gary, for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. 
You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. In the 1950s, kids were about baseball, the Lone Ranger, and apple pie. In the 60s, it was war, finding your freedom in the monkeys. The 1970s brought disco, the Brady Bunch, and self-empowerment. When the 80s arrived, the youth of the world celebrated individuality in a rocking beat. The 90s whizzed by with lots of grunge and many shades of gray. Now, the turn of the century has come and gone, and today's youth has something to say. Young Mind Society is the voice of a new generation. Tune in on AstronetRadio.com Fridays at 6 p.m. Central to hear DJ Y, Carl Papa, Queen Meat, and Princess Jazz lay down the humor, ideas, and thoughts of the now. Remember, Young Mind Society, Fridays at 6 p.m. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Ethereal Mantras, Affirmations, and Notions for Placid and Peaceful Earth Plane Transversal. And the author will call him no one, but his real name, the secret to no one, is Anthony Rogers, and Anthony joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Anthony. Hello. Great. How are you? Great to have you with us. Now, we're going to get a better understanding in a bit here about why you use no one as the author's name on your front cover, but it is a big title, but there's a lot of meaning into all those words that you shared with us. Now, this is really a, a book of introspection. That's what I get from it. You're causing us yes. to think about who we are and not mm-hmm. so much what we think we are, right? Right. I mean, we may think, well, I'm a teacher, I'm a businessman, a businesswoman, I'm I'm a doctor, but you're de- you're going deeper into each one of us. Absolutely. Not only who we are, but how we relate to each other and how we relate to different groups in our culture and how we relate to the planet. Um, you know, basically introspection about interpersonal and interpersonal relationships. We're all spirit, as you say. Absolutely. Beautiful light beings, as a, a Buddhist say. Um, I do identify as a Buddhist, as a Wiccan, and as a spiritual person. So how did this all come about, Anthony? How did you get into this way of thinking, way of living, and then how did this book come about? Okay, how this came about is, um, well, what did they they say, a cautionary tale? Or um, basically, um, growing up African-American in the South, uh, getting exposed to Southern Baptist religion and the hypocrisy there and the racism there and the sexism there and the homophobia there, uh, it just never resonated with me. So I've always considered myself to be spiritual, even though I was forced to go to church as a child. I didn't have a choice. Uh, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people had to endure that. But um, as I got into education, um, you know, earning my degrees and uh, going to different workshops uh, and also teaching, I got exposed to Eastern philosophy. And that just resonated more with me. It just fit my personality more uh, regarding to, you know, mutual loving kindness for everyone. 
uh, reverence for the parent, and uh, basically uh, anti-ism, isms, uh, which, uh, again, you picked out one of the, uh, one of my writings, Sickness, which kind of talks about the isms. So even though I grew up with isms, um, I never um, related to them. I mean, I never identified with them. And even though I received the consequences of them, uh, I never saw that as valid or true. And so basically the book came about is over the years through personal and professional development. Uh, you know, I would just write things down and, you know, just put it in a drawer. <laughs> just write things down and put it in a drawer. And, um, you know, it's classic, you know, when I get around to it, I'm going to learn how to play a piano. When I get around to it, you know, I'm going to take a trip when I get around to it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so basically I decided I got around to it and published a book. Well, in the format of the book, very different, short, brief thoughts in prose, in poem, uh, mm-hmm. as poems, uh, you think brevity is very important, don't you? Yes, I do, because I think if, if you go on and on and on, you kind of lose uh, the meaning, and also, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think it's a very, you know, accepted viewpoint that like when a book is turned into a movie most people prefer the book over the movie you're familiar with that for my phenomenon right, right right and i think that's because when you have the book you have your imagination whereas with a movie the producers and directors kind of put everything out there for you you know what i mean so i think by having brevity you kind of plant the seed and then the reader can kind of fill in the blanks you know, can kind of make it their own. By making it their own, then they can really get the message or they can really interpret it in a way that makes sense to them. In fact, there is a notion that, that people can't teach you anything that you don't already know. Are you familiar with that? Right. Well, you know it from within, correct? Exactly. So basically, you're getting exposed to something that you already know. So you're triggering so, these innermost under this really this not only innermost feelings but inner, innermost truth that exists in all of us. Right, absolutely, and, and it's all been said before, and you know in different ways. Uh, Why the you know poetic I mean? form? Why the poetic form? Uh, because I think poetry is is is, is again and it's simple and it's not arduous. And, and again, it just gives me, it gave me the fluidity, you know, to write something for four lines or five words or 25 words, you know what I mean? And, and also, right, so it's not like a workshop, whereas a workshop is a specific uh, format that you need to follow. And it's that form because I wanted to exercise poetic license. <laughs> In fact, while, while I was writing my book and while I was getting edited, you know, um, I got into, you know, conflicts with my editors because they said, oh, you need to change this to that so people will know that. And I think, well, if I change this to that, it won't be my word. It'll be your word. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, before we talk about No One, the author of this book, uh, let's hear from you. Why don't you read one of your favorites? Now, here's one of my favorites, Perfection. That's page 23, if you're following along. Go ahead. Do you have it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. 
Perfection is the popular projected illusion that is really poison. Poison that destroys our sense of self-worth, self-esteem, and confidence by allowing us to think that we are less than or not good enough, don't measure up, have failed, and are consequently failures. Purge the poison. Know that nothing is truly perfect. Hence, you don't have to be either. Ex expend effort and energy toward and for your goals, remembering that a steady stream of water cuts fissures and caverns into mountains. Again, everyone, that's coming from no one because Anthony has this view of life, a unique view that I think when you explain this, we'll understand, Anthony. Now, give us, you know, An give us... The, yeah. perfection? Okay. Well, part of it, of course, uh, again, saying I'm from the South, I'm African-American, right? So racism is that there are certain races that are perfect, right? <laughs> And if you're not that race, you're imperfect. Uh -huh. And then you have body image, you have social economic status, you have religious belief or spiritual belief. I mean, basically all the isms that said you are or not perfect. Um, and then you have this huge obsession with competition. And that was the non one of the also one of the, my major uh, motivations for this piece. Is because the focus is on winning versus being a good sport. A good example is I play volleyball, also play Scrabble, but by most, yeah, it's it's more um, flagrant or apparent on the volleyball court because some people are obsessed with winning, whereas I like to have, you know, I like to get the vitamin D, I like to be at the beach, I like the sunshine, and I like to exercise. Yes, I like to play a, a good game. But if I win, I don't need to beat my chest. And if I lose, I don't need to, you know, start yelling or throwing balls or cursing or getting upset. <laughs> so <laughs> to me, the journey is a destination. So our culture, especially American culture, is obsessed with perfection. You know, it kind of it goes on align with that. Well, nurses are people who can't be doctors. Have you heard that before? Yes. Right, exactly. Whereas a person may be perfectly fine being a nurse. What's wrong with that? Mm -hmm. So we are perfect, and there's no such thing as imperfection. And I know some religious people say, well, we're perfect because God made you that way. Um, I don't necessarily need that. I just think we are perfect. And so if you embrace the idea that you're perfect, then any changes that you can make, or want to make, it's because you want to make, not because someone says, oh, you have to do this in order to be perfect. And then, and the other problem with being perfect is like, once you do that, then you're gonna have to do something else. <laughs> if someone else, you know, if somebody says, oh, you need a nose job, you know, oh, you need to leave 20 pounds. Well, now you need to do this, now you need to do that. It never ends. If someone's validating who you are as a person, you'll never live up to that standard. So, but when you embrace yourself as I am perfect and accept yourself for who you are, then you can decide what you want to do. And it'll be because you want to do it, not because you need to do it to meet some standard. Anthony is a licensed clinical social worker and a personal and professional life coach. He also conducts weekly dating and relationship groups 
and he's a business consultant. So how does this way of thinking help you in these different areas of your life? Uh, it helps me because basically the whole idea of perfection, uh, of course, puts um, a huge strain on one's self-esteem. And so businesses have self-esteem, the way they treat their customers, the way they treat their um, um, clients, their, you know, the way they treat their employees, how upper management communicates, etc. Uh, families have self-esteem, relationships have self-esteem, and of course everyone else has self-esteem. So again, if you come from the viewpoint of acceptance and growth and encouragement and empathy, then that facilitates that the healthy functioning of whatever system you're working with, whether it's a family, whether it's a company, whether it's a relationship. As we conclude our discussion about Anthony's book, I wanted to have you read, Anthony, your titled poem, Ownership. I think that kind of really focuses in on a lot that we have been discussing. Ownership. You do not belong to your gender, race, culture, religion, city, state, county, country, parents, partners, lovers, children, government, sexuality, political party affiliation, social class, school, college, occupation, significant other, spouse, or any others you can think of. You belong only to self. Hence, primary loyalty is to Anthony. Therefore, it is permissible and okay to say no to any or all of them. True fulfillment and happiness will be yours, see, when you are able to say no to others and yes to thee. We need to say yes to ourselves more often. Absolutely. And by saying yes to yourself, you really are being respectful to everyone else in your life because when you're saying no to yourself um, again from a clinical standpoint you're being passive or passive aggressive and eventually that energy is going to come out and there's going to be resentment okay so it's like uh, a bottle it's a water on a um, on a burner eventually you know it's going to overflow <laughs> And then you're going to get, you're going to hurt yourself more, and you're going to hurt the relationship more, or the people think, people more. So people think, you know, being a yes man or being compliant is a good thing, but you know, it's not okay to be compliant or to, again, think that these, you know, constructs that I've written down own you because once you do, you put yourself in a box, or basically you create your own uh, prison, your own hell, uh, so to speak. It's kind of interesting because I like to go to like aquariums and zoos, and some people say to me, well, Anthony, what, you know, how can you go see those caged animals? I'm like, well, I can go see those caged animals because I love tigers, and I'm not going to Africa. 
<laughs> and aren't we all in cages anyway? You know, and so that creates a whole other conversation, right? Like, are we all in a cage? You know, oh, I can't do this because I'm too old, or I can't do this because I'm too young, or I can't do this because that seems stupid, or I can't do this because it's too risky. I mean, so the cages are in our brain or in our mind. We've been talking with Anthony Rogers. He's no one as the author of Ethereal Mantras, Affirmations, and Notions for Placid and Peaceful Earth Plane Transversal. That is a mouthful, but his thoughts, his prose, his poetry causes us to reflect and to dig deep into who we really are. Anthony, tell us, what's the best way to get your book? The best way to get my book is on Amazon.com. Uh, you can get hard copy and an e-copy. Put the title in, and um, it'll be there for you. It's also available on iTunes. Speaking of, you know, dreams and who you are, when I wrote the beat book, I resided in Santa Monica. Now I'm in Maui, the most popular island in the world. I don't know, <laughs> as, as proclaimed by CNN News. So that was part of my dream to move to Hawaii. So I've been here for eight months. Um, So if you're in Maui, um, you can give me a call at 310-3861-808, and I can sell you a signed copy. And also my email is lifecoachacr at aol.com, lifecoachacr at aol.com. If you'd like to get a copy that way, you can reach, I can be reached at. Well, Anthony, you're the most interesting no one I have ever talked to. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Have a great day.